0: Well, we all recognize that Albert Einstein was one of the great intellects of the 20th century. His work on theoretical physics uh, turned the scientific world upside down and really made Einstein a household name. Uh, But Einstein was not always as famous and recognizable as he is today. If you've been watching any of the NFL football playoffs, there's a commercial, I think it's a cell phone commercial with a character playing Einstein. I didn't know that was happening, but he's part of my sermon today. But he was not always as famous as he is today. The story is told that early in his career, uh, he delivered a series of lectures at a series of universities in Europe, Um, and he was not a well-known figure at that time. He was early in his career, and each night he lectured. The audience was different, but the lecture was the same, and. As he traveled around to each university, he was driven by the same driver each time. And after about the fourth or fifth night of these lectures, the driver said to Einstein, you know, I think I could give your lecture from memory because I've heard it so many times. And Einstein had a good sense of humor. He had kind of a playful part of his personality despite his great intellect. So he thought that was a good idea. and He thought he would try it. So at the next night's lecture, the driver pretended to be Einstein. And Einstein sat in the back wearing a chauffeur's hat. And since he was relatively unknown, this was pre TV, pre internet, um, nobody knew what he looked like, uh, nobody noticed in the audience. And so at the end of the lecture, which the driver delivered perfectly, a uh, rousing round of applause, people were in awe, and then the MC of the event uh, announced by surprise there would be a time for questions and answers. <laughs> the first question was a complex question having to do with electromagnetism and the particle theory of light, and the driver knew he was in trouble. So he thought for a moment and said, thank you so much for your question, and I don't mean to offend, but that question is really so elementary, I'm going to invite my driver up here to answer. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's a true story at all, probably apocryphal, but today uh, I feel a little bit like Einstein's driver. First, because I'm following uh, Dr. John Dixon, a world-class scholar who preached to us last Sunday, and his introduction to Genesis uh, was terrific. In fact, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, go to YouTube, find our channel, and listen to J- uh, John preach that message. It was terrific. And secondly, I feel that way because we're studying now the mysterious and the magnificent book of Genesis, the beginning of everything. We're calling this series the Gospel in Genesis, which kind of gives away that we are looking for the good news of the story. Of Genesis. Last week, Dr. Dixon gave us an overview of the first three chapters, saying basically that first, Genesis is not a collection of fairy tales created by uh, Stone Age goat herders, as some skeptics believe, but rather a very sophisticated and highly intelligent piece of ancient literature. Secondly, he said, Genesis, properly understood, um, offers profound meaning for life. The book of Genesis, especially the first three chapters that we're going to be studying, is foundational for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. Dr. D. James Kennedy once wrote, Genesis presents to us the foundational underpinnings of everything else in the Bible. The origin of the universe, the origin of order and complexity, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the atmosphere and hydrosphere, the origin of life, the origin of humanity, the origin of marriage, the origin of evil. Genesis explains the origin of language, government, culture, nations, and religion. If Genesis were to be removed from the Bible, the rest of the Bible and most of life itself would become incomprehensible. But as we begin today, I want us to keep something in mind. We as modern people, and by the way, we will someday be called ancient people if Jesus doesn't return, right? What's modern will become ancient. In fact, my boys already think I'm kind of ancient, as I am now. But we modern people have been shaped by a culture that thinks in scientific categories. So when we read Genesis, we tend to ask two questions when it comes to creation. We want to ask when and how, right? That's what we want to know. That's what we argue about. How did the universe begin? Is the Big Bang true? When did it happen? Is the Earth 10,000 years old or is it 17 billion years old? These are the questions that astrophysicists spend their lives studying and learning about. And by the way, I do not believe that science and faith are enemies. Rather, I believe that science is a gift from the God who created us in His image. We'll talk about image in a couple of weeks. So that as we study His creation, we gain a greater understanding of His glory. I believe that science, properly pursued, leads to worship. And like the series implies, we are looking for the good news in Genesis. But we need to see that Genesis was not written to, primarily to answer the when And the how questions, as much as we want it to. It's not written for those purposes. Rather, Genesis was written to answer the who and the why questions. Who created everything that is? And why did the creator create? Let me give you this little illustration. Our second son, Jesse, got engaged on New Year's Day. All together now? ah. Isn't that sweet down in Nashville? So imagine him uh, writing a love letter to his fiance, And when she gets it, she begins to study it for his penmanship. He began, she begins to evaluate it for his spelling. She begins to look at his grammatical correctness. Or she spends a great deal of energy trying to determine exactly when he wrote the letter. Was it yesterday or was it last week sometime or was it a month ago? She could study all those things, interesting things, and miss the entire message of the letter. So we're going to read Genesis more like a love letter than like a science manual. And I want to, uh, to you to keep those things in mind as we go through the study. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read again the first 13 verses. We were in these verses last week, but we're going to look at them a little bit differently today. You can look on the screens or follow in your Bible. I'm reading from the New International Version. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let me stop there. The Hebrew words here used uh, for heaven and earth refer to the totality of the known universe. That is, all matter and energy, uh, all stars, galaxies, planets, fundamental particles, black holes, space-time dimensions, all of it. All of it had a beginning. Also, everything else to come in the biblical story comes out of these first four words. Name it. The plagues on Egypt, or Jonah and the great fish, the virgin birth, water into wine, uh, Jesus' resurrection, the second coming, the new heaven and new earth. All of it proceeds from the first sentence of the first chapter in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Now, we don't see this in English, but if you look at the Hebrew, those two words, formless and empty, rhyme which indicates that possibly this was originally written in poetic form so it could be memorized, sung as a song, and certainly remembered. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. We're going to talk more about this next week, but this is actually a command The Hebrew literally says, light become. And this command occurs ten times in the first chapter of Genesis. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Another little side note, the Hebrew word translated day is yom. And it had a very flexible range of meaning in ancient Hebrew. It could mean the 12 hours in a day that are daylight, as opposed to nighttime. It could mean a 24-hour day period. It could also mean a period of time and age And it's used this way when we talk about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Verse 6 And God said, Let there be a vault or expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered waters he called and the waters he the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good Then God said let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds Notice that phrase according to their various kinds we'll look at it more deeply next week and it was so The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now remember, our lens here is not when and how, but our lens is who and why. Who is the creator and why did he create what he created, and how is that good news? The first thing we see here is that the creator is eternal the creator is eternal a number of years ago uh, when our four boys were much younger uh, i remember giving our older two boys lego sets for christmas i think there were 350 piece lego sets and they were about 10 and 12 years old and um, a couple days after christmas i walked into their room and i saw sitting in the middle of their floor a fully assembled 350 piece lego attack helicopter Okay. when I saw that, what do you think I immediately assumed? Did I assume, for example, that the Lego helicopter had always been there? That it was eternal? Well, no, because our house was only two years old at the time. Would I assume that the, Helico- uh, the Lego helicopter was a result of random processes? That someone had left a window open all night, a mighty wind had rushed in and blown, and the, the pieces had bounced all around the room and finally came out fully assembled? No, I wouldn't have assumed that. But I would have have assumed, and so would you have, that the Lego helicopter was intentionally and painstakingly assembled, all 350 pieces of it in a specific order, in a specific way, by one of our older sons. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. These ten words in English, only seven words in ancient Hebrew, tell us two main things about the Creator. First, the Creator is before all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Last week, Dr. Dixon pointed out that the ancient pagan world was full of all kinds of creation stories in all those surrounding pagan cultures. He spent a good bit of time on the Babylonian creation myth. But the Hebrew story is completely different and unique from all those stories. In the beginning, Elohim, That's the Hebrew word for God. It's kind of a generic word for a divine being. And Elohim would eventually reveal his personal name, Yahweh, to Moses. I am that I am. This God existed outside of time. Elohim created time itself. In our call to worship, we read words from Psalm 90 today. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's unique among the ancient peoples of the world. In John 17, Jesus himself says, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world, In the beginning, God, Elohim, already was. The creator is eternal. And that's the first answer to the question of who. The second one is the creator is the source of all things. Not only is he before all things, he's the source of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis, there are two words used for God's creative activity. The one here is bara in Hebrew, created, and it's used only of God in the Bible. Only God creates bara. And most scholars believe that that word is used to mean creates out of nothing, creates that which beforehand did not exist. The Latin phrase is ex nihilo. Only God creates ex nihilo. The other word used for to make is asa, and that's used both of God God and of human beings who make things out of what was already created, out of stuff that already existed. So the fundamental question of the universe is, where did everything come from? If we think of the Lego helicopter again, one question is, who put these pieces together to build the helicopter? A whole other question is, where did the pieces come from? Where did the plastic come from? Where did the atoms come from that make up the plastic come from. This is a problem for modern science. It's the problem of modern science. Francis Crick, a British Nobel Prize winning molecular biologist and outspoken atheist, was actually one of the scientists credited with discovering the complex double helix nature of the DNA. Uh, He was a, a brilliant man. And speaking of the incredible complexity of DNA, Crick once said, An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would would have had to have been unsatisfied to get it going. Later, this same man, Francis Crick, attempted to explain that miracle, the miracle of life, in a theory called directed panspermia, a theory that life on Earth was planted billions of years ago by an advanced, superintelligent alien civilization who came here by spaceships from a different planet. I'm not making that up. He wrote a book about it. That sounds a bit like faith to me. Does it to you? Even a third grader knows how to ask the next question, right? Where did the... Aliens come from. It's a problem for modern science. There are only two possibilities when it comes to the existence of the universe. One is it always was, the other is it had a beginning. Now, for most of us in this room, that's kind of a no brainer. We've never considered that it didn't have a beginning. However, for most of human history, that was the view that the universe just always was until guys like Einstein came along. He was actually a key figure in discovering that the universe is still expanding and using mathematics and extrapolating backward, figured out, therefore, it had to have a beginning. What Genesis tells us is that everything, all matter, and time itself had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, it had to have a beginner. And that beginner had to exist outside of time and matter. And this is unique worldview. As Dr. Dixon pointed out last week, this was completely foreign to pagan mythology. It also flies in the face of modern-day atheistic naturalism that tells us that the universe came into existence by random natural processes, impersonal processes, and therefore is absolutely meaningless. Now, a bit of a side note, we are fascinated by the two questions of when and how. When was the beginning? How did the beginning happen? And there are actually two main camps among Bible-believing people when it comes to when, depending on how certain words and phrases of Genesis are interpreted. There are what's called young earth believers, those who believe the earth is some 10,000 years old or so, and there are some called old earth believers that believe the earth is somewhere around 17 billion years old. Personally, uh, I lean toward the old earth side, but whether you are young earth or whether you're old earth, we're really on the same team. I agree with one Christian astrophysicist who said, Young earth believers and old earth believers are like two people sitting on either end of a canoe in a great ocean. However, those who don't believe the first four words of Genesis 1:1, In the beginning God, are in a completely different ocean. I agree with that. St. Augustine of Hippo, in fact, writing in the 4th century AD, said it this way, The Bible is not a scientific textbook seeking to answer the ever-changing inquiries of science, but rather a theological textbook seeking to reveal God and the means by which He saves us. That leads us to the how question. How did everything come to be? There are only two options, actually. That is the Genesis answer, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the non-Genesis answer, which is basically the universe created itself which, in fact, contradicts the first law of thermodynamics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed, which is a foundational principle of all of science. But again, what we need to see here is that the purpose of Genesis is not necessarily to answer the when and the how questions, but rather the who and the why question, which is why the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the first thing we see is that the Creator is eternal, and that's good news because it tells us that, secondly, that Creator is intentional. The Creator is intentional. Back to the Lego helicopter just for a moment. If you've ever tried to put together a Lego set, uh, you know a couple of things. First of all, uh, if you step on one of those pieces... With your bare feet, it hurts. I don't know what they're made of, but they hurt. But secondly, the pieces have to be put together in a specific way, in a specific order. Or else the final product does not look anything like a Lego attack helicopter. A Lego toy was designed with both intelligence and specific intentionality. I want you to listen again to these next few verses. Listen for the specific design and the intentionality and the order. Verse 2, Genesis 1. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, which you'll notice, the presence of the Holy Spirit in creation, we'll come back to this, was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Notice God creates through his speech. By his word, we'll also come back to that. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault, or expanse, between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and the morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. What we see clearly here, if we pay attention, is that God, the Creator, creates with order. As John Dixon said last week, ancient paganism saw creation as chaotic and dangerous which is actually very similar to how modern naturalism sees the universe, which is as random and meaningless. Genesis, rather, presents a creator who is intelligent, intentional, and a creation that is ordered. The late Carl Sagan, who was a popular astronomer and a non-believer, was a pioneer in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. He believed that if scientists could detect communication from outer space that contained a message of specific complexity, we would know that it comes from an intelligent mind even if we didn't know how to translate said communication. He went on to say that such a discovery would be, quote, the most important discovery in the history of the world. So for the last 30 years or so, scientists have been listening to deep space for intelligent communication for such a message. And so far, not so much. But consider what we already know about the aforementioned DNA molecule, that part of a living cell that contains genetic codes. Did you know that the DNA of a single human cell contains the blueprint for all 600 muscles, 2 million optic nerves, and the 100 billion nerve cells of the body? So would it not be reasonable to assume that the highly specified messages of DNA have come from an intelligent mind? And should we not consider this communication an important discovery? Notice, in the first 13 verses of Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of all matter, verse 1, the creation of light, verse 3, the creation of a water system, verse 6, the creation of land and sea, verse 9, the creation of vegetation, verse 11. And by the way, what do plants need in order to thrive? Light, water, and land. That's not random. That's not by chance. In fact, Christian astrophysicist Hugh Ross has pointed out that the four initial conditions of the earth listed in Genesis 1, formless, empty, dark, covered with water, are exactly what scientists now believe were the conditions of a newly formed planet Earth. Now, why does this matter? Not because the Bible is a science textbook. It's not. But simply demonstrates what Dr. Dixon said last week. It's not ancient mythology created by prehistoric goat herders. They could not have known the order in which a planet needed to be created. Only God, the Creator, could share that information. So the Creator is intentional, and that's good news because it means life itself is intentional, which means that you are also intentional. Now we come to the why of creation. This is part three today. The Creator is relational. The why of creation The Creator is relational. Let's change our analogy for a moment moment, from a Lego helicopter to a plate of cookies. I've said before that these are my favorite Christmas cookies. Let's say after one of our Christmas Eve services here at South Strait, I go down to my office and find a plate of these cookies, my favorite cookies, sitting on my desk in my office. What would I assume about those cookies? I would assume, would I assume that they were uh, the result of random forces in the universe? no. I would assume they were intentional, right? I would assume that someone gathered all the ingredients, followed the recipe just in a certain way, and baked those cookies and then delivered them to my office on Christmas Eve. But there's more than that. Because they were my favorite cookies, I would assume that the maker of those cookies knew me and knew they were my favorite. And because they were in my office, I would assume that they were for me. And finally, I would assume that those cookies were a gift of love. In that way, those cookies bear witness to a relational cookie maker. What we see in Genesis 1 is that God exists in relationship with himself. Right here in the first few words of the Bible, we see the, the mysterious Trinitarian nature of the creator, of God. In the beginning, God created. The spirit was hovering over the waters. And God said That is, he created through his word. If we jump ahead to the New Testament, the Apostle John says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Who is this word that John is talking about? Now we know. Two verses later, John 1.14, we're told, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Son is not God's plan B for a sinful creation. The Son was there in the beginning, and the Son is the agent of creation itself. So back to the why question. Why did the Creator Create. Was he lonely? Was he bored? The purpose of creation, as we'll see in coming weeks, is life. The purpose of creation is goodness. The Creator created to share His goodness and life with that which He creates. The entire creation is a gift of love from a loving Creator. For the Creator creates for relationship. God created out of relationship within himself, father, son, spirit, for relationship with his creation. God created out of love and for love. All of creation is an expression and testimony to the creator's love. Let's go back for just a moment to the imaginary love letter between my son and his fiancee. Let's imagine the letter is written in ink on paper. But the message isn't about the ink or the paper, is it? The letter is written in his handwriting, but the message really is not about his penmanship. The letter is written in English, but the message is not about what language it's in. The letter was written at a certain time on a certain day, but the message is not about when it was written. The letter was written out of relationship for relationship, out of love and for love. The letter is written from the heart and to the heart of the beloved. That's the message of Genesis. And that's good news. Let's bow together as I close. Lord, we thank you today for your word. What can we say other than we stand in awe of the mystery, beauty, and power of what we read and see in the book we call Genesis. And as we move through this series, by your word and spirit, open our eyes and, more importantly, open our hearts that we might catch even a glimpse of the power, intelligence, goodness, love, and nearness of our Creator God. And may we seek only to know and love you as you already know and love us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Just before the benediction, I would encourage you each to continue to read on your own through the great book of Genesis. Excuse me. Next week we'll continue in chapter 1 for the next 10 or 12 verses or so. So continue to read and study on your own. Receive now the benediction. May we go now in the name of the Creator of all things and in the power and presence of His Spirit and in the knowledge of His Son who holds all things together. Amen. Have a great day.